I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Freelance journalist, novelist, contributing editor at McLean's and Harvard Neiman Fellow, Stephen Marr. How you doing? Pretty good, thank you. How are you, Jesse? I'm doing all right. I'm excited to talk with you about Doug Ford who is cruising to victory because that is exactly how much we all hate ourselves. <laughs> also, Stephen, I have crossed a line, and I need to tell everybody about it. Uh, the latest on the Online News Act. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Today's episode is brought to everybody by Don Hall, Rick Clark, Chris Seaton, Rob Savage, Shannon McGrinera, Chris Bird, Ruth Jacobs, and Brett. Hi, my name is Brett, and I'm a healthcare worker from Northern Ontario. I support Canada Land because I work in remote communities, and I especially appreciate the dedication to covering Indigenous stories as well as finding voices from across the country that see Canada as more than just Toronto. A little spray paint, a catchphrase, and a message that government in Ontario is working just fine. No changes needed. We're less than two weeks away now from electing a new provincial government to serve right here at Queen's Park. Now, many of the recent polls indicate that we're heading towards another majority Doug Ford PC government. Over four years, Doug Ford has dug himself in and out of controversies, from COVID restrictions to health care funding to paving over green space. 
Stephen, what is going on? I, I I tend to project a certain confidence that I know what's going on, especially with the media, uh, you know, regardless of whether I do. I, I don't pretend to know what's going on right now. You're, 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 well, you're Ottawa-based? I'm uh, in Ontario now, but I'm in Nova Scotia, and I spend most of my time in Nova Scotia, so I don't claim to be the world's biggest expert on Ontario politics. But I talked to somebody who said, of the history of Ontario politics is Ontarians re-elect premiers. Yeah, maybe it's as simple as that. I mean, I try to stay in my lane and just try to understand what's going on in the media, and I do not. I mean, the Toronto Star, which is just sort of explicitly a, you know, liberal party supporting newspaper and a small L liberal leaning newspaper, traditionally, they have been criticizing Doug Ford day after day, month after month, uh, the stories, some very good journalism. And then I look at the Toronto Star, the front page is this big, beaming, sun-kissed portrait of his face, of Doug Ford, and like written, it looks like a Merchant Ivory film. It's like in serif font and in, in, in italics, and it says, the evolution of Doug Ford, and it's the front page of the star. Like, I don't understand what's going on. It's an opinion piece, but you wouldn't know it because it's like a front page story by Martin Reg Cohn. And Watching Doug Ford up close on the campaign trail, I saw a changed man in changed times. It's all about how he's like risen, he's grown, he's evolved, and he wouldn't even give the star a sit-down interview. Like, Cohn was allowed to tag along while he did like an hour of door knocking, and it's all about how governing has changed him. I'll read some quotes. It is a different Ford, utterly unlike the self-styled outsider and disruptor. The old maverick is modulated and moderated, even humbled. He's turned himself around. Every recent public opinion survey shows his campaign cruising to victory. He now owns up to the complexities of government. Unlike the simplistic slogans he popularized in 2018 like Buck a Beer and For the People, four years later the campaign slogan has also grown up with a more concrete message, Get it done. That's the evolution? from from for the people to get it done. Uh, okay, I, another quote. I get Doug Ford to pause the practiced message track and turn personal for a few fleeting moments. This, Stephen, is like entirely without substance to back up the notion that he has evolved in anything but his optics, his image. Like there's 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 nothing in this piece about how his actual policy or governing has matured or, or like, I just, I don't understand. I don't understand, Stephen. What is this doing in the Toronto Star? I would note, I don't know whether you saw the, uh, the Beaverton decided that this was amusing, right? You could see the response online made it clear that your reaction is shared by other people. I wonder two things here. One is working journalists sometimes do what we call beat sweeteners, Right? You're going to be covering someone for a while and you think, I should try to get on their good side and write something nice about them and then I'll continue to have access. Another is the Toronto Star shifting from its, it's had a change in ownership, a change in management. I think that the business argument, Toronto has three conservative newspapers, just for market differentiation, the Toronto Star would likely be wise to to stay in its liberal lane. 
who knows what's going on. So those are my my two sort of thoughts from watching it. Yeah, beat sweetener might just be like that, you know, like the polls are pretty damn clear that Doug Ford's going to win. So let's throw him a bone, I guess, maybe. Or maybe it's like they think like this is where the public's at. So, you know, I think that like Canadian media in general is pretty uncomfortable with beating the shit out of a politician if they think the public likes that politician. They don't like to be cranky in that way. Other people are drawing a more direct line. Like they're like, Jesse, it was Canada Land that reported that the new owners have supported financially conservative candidate after conservative candidate. So obviously the papers, yeah, like it's it's shifting its politics and this obviously came from on a high. I don't believe that that's how things work, but maybe I'm naive. You know, there's another more simple line to draw here, which is like Doug Ford paid off the media. Like, you know, there was millions of dollars in advertising during the pandemic went directly to a chosen list of media beneficiaries. Could it be as simple as that? Like... But maybe my focus is too too fo- like I too focused on the media when the public is weirdly coming around, polling would indicate in a way that I also don't understand. Like it was it was just in March, Stephen, that Ford's approval ratings were at thirty seven percent. And if that dry statistic feels a little bloodless, like, I don't know if I can overstate this to to just provide some context anecdotally to people outside of Ontario. I do not remember any politician being as hated in my life, Canadian politician, Trump, of course, but I didn't have a conversation with anyone the last two years that wasn't like about, oh my God, our kids have been out of school longer than like anyone in the world, you know? Oh my God, why aren't we getting paid sick leave for our essential workers? Oh, my God. I can't believe he's actually, you know, like shutting down playgrounds and outdoor facilities and asking the cops to crack skulls. And the cops are saying, no, we're not going to do it. It went on and on. And, and like all I could say during those hundreds of conversations was like, well, you know, it's a shame we can't do anything sooner, I guess. But, you know, it seems pretty clear that he's going to get voted out. You know, I guess I guess everyone's just going to have to wait. What does this guy have to do? For people to vote him out of office, like kill your grandmother? No, oh wait, he did that. He actually did that. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of killing your grandmother, I've been kind of disappointed that the, um, although not terribly surprised, that the horrors in the long-term care homes didn't play a more prominent role in in the campaign. Um, likely because it's not a good voting issue because most people don't imagine it will ever affect them. People kind of like Ford. Writing for McLean's in the early days of Doug Ford, I wrote a column in which I compared him to Boss Hogg. I confidently predicted that he would not win a second term. There came a point in the pandemic when I realized, oh, I'm starting to like this guy, right? That the, the, the sort of feeling of relief that somebody was taking positive steps, was actively involved, people saw him out. You know, you can say that there were photo ops, but he was out delivering PPE and working the phones and trying to get PPE. So I think that that there was a sort of significant shift where early in the pandemic, they developed a sense that he was on their side. So people who had never warmed to him before did warm to him then. But can I ask you a question? Sure. Are you a stupid person? I, 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 I've met you. I've never, I never thought of you as a stupid person. Uh, 
Probably. I don't know. No. No. <laughs> Like, what are you talking about? He made a video where he made cheesecake and he started smiling more and he went out with a little tiny shovel. Like, that meant something to you? I'm just, I'm, I'm, please, I'm trying to comprehend. It wasn't that. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. I think that there was a time when, like, we remember he told people like a, like a fool that they ought to go down south and enjoy their holidays and people listened to them and they came back and seeded COVID throughout Ontario. But at some point after that, you had this feeling like, is nobody ever going to smarten up and realize what's going on? And then he did, right? Or he seemed to. And I think that there was a point where a lot of people (laughs) in Ontario sort of felt like, oh, good, he gets it. He's doing stuff. Yeah. Compared to an awful lot of jurisdictions in North America, Ontario was less bad, right? They took it very seriously. There was a sort of shift where he went against his cabinet and went with basically the swing voters in GTA who wanted more measures. And I think that, that you know, uh, he stayed on side with those people who vote for Trudeau federally and for him provincially. And if you want to know why it looks like he's going to win this election, I think that studying those people and how they see him would would give you the answer. I guess. I mean, I guess. I guess. I can laugh, but, you know, I'm I'm wrong. You know, like everybody. (laughs) I just, you say people like him. I don't know that I've ever spoken to one until today who actually has said that. But, you know, I'm in my latte sipping little bubble. But I, I kind of feel like I'm not. Like, it doesn't matter what demographic, like... You know, you want to do it like a comparative analysis, and I, I should leave this to wag the dug, the actual policy stuff. But like, what's a big issue? Housing's a big issue. It has risen under Ford like nowhere else in Canada. If we compare him to other jurisdictions in North America, the record might look good, but it doesn't look good if you compare him to other jurisdictions in Canada. By any metric that I'm aware, the PPE thing, he was doing favors for friends there. Who did he expedite for vaccinations? I mean, even by his own metrics, here he is in 2018 threatening us about what would happen if his opponents win. If the Liberals or NDP get the chance, gas prices will soar. They will hit $2 a litre in Ontario by next summer. Mark my words. Mark his word. I'm so glad that we didn't make that mistake because we would have had $2 a liter gas if we'd gone. Oh, wait. Here's John Ibbotson in the Globe and Mail. In small town Ontario, gas prices are a top ballot issue. Combined with suburban voters, it could mean another PC majority. I don't understand. If $2 a liter gas is the reason why we didn't vote for the other parties and voted for the conservatives, then the fact that we're now paying $2 a liter gas is also a reason to vote for the conservatives and not it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't make any sense to me why john ibbotson or anyone in the media would in any way echo these weird confusing he's not even nice to us i'm going to play you another clip here's what happened when global news actually tried to ask him some questions the other day wondering why you're not releasing your campaign schedule to the media why you're not letting people know precisely where I, you're you going know, something well i'm out there every single day i don't know if you you're there but i don't worry global you're there all the time so we look That's not what i asked sir well i know but i'm just saying i'm out every single day uh, you're welcome to be there. What do you think about sending out fake invoices to donors? You're here to, to people. Yeah. I, think, I, I think we should focus on... Oh, I'm asking you specifically that, no, no, with what, respect. What we should be focusing on. These people 
are hurting right now, and you're worried about politics. Yeah, you came out for politics with due respect. So how do you, how do you feel here. about how do you feel about those? Anyways, thank you. After that, two OPP officers push me back. Ford enters his vehicle. They all drive away. He doesn't answer our questions. He's less available to the press and accountable than any other politician. This sounds like I'm saying, like, I don't like the guy. If I was advising him, I would tell him to do exactly these things. Like, why answer the press's questions? And, you know, if I seem really heated, Stephen, like, hey, my personal interest is we have a show called Wag the Doug. I don't see how that show survives anybody else winning this election. So I guess my personal interest is, like, it's good for business if Doug Ford stays. It just feels like it makes fools of us. Like, what was the point of years of coverage of how badly he managed this crisis and what was the point of those hundreds of conversations with my neighbors? Like, it just makes a fool of the voter. Like, to what extent are we in a democracy? Am I going to ask that question? I don't know. I'm just baffled. I'm left with the disquieting feeling that listeners may come away from this uh, podcast with the impression that I am supporting or defending Doug Ford. (laughs) And I don't want to leave that impression. He seems to have successfully convinced a lot of people in Ontario that he's their guy, right? That basic, hey, folks, folks, you know, uh, he's connected with people. And that that Ibbotson column about the way that high gas prices seem to be helping Doug, I kind of think that drivers, commuters, think Doug's their guy. He has demonstrated over and over again he wants to build highways, he used to complain about the carbon tax, all that stuff, that if you think of Ontario politics as, you know, the rural people typically vote Tory, the urban people not, and the struggle is over the suburbs, Ford is a suburban guy. He drives a vehicle around and complains about traffic and... That's how it looks to me, man. This is a low bar. But you know what? Like, I'm with you in, like, a lot of people are choosing him as their guy at least above the other people. And every one of those conversations where people were just, like, you know, about to pass out with rage at Ford, I would say, hey, what's the name of the Liberal Party leader? Just to see if they knew. And nobody knew Stephen Del Duca's name. And I think we end where we began. Stephen, like, it's not just Ontario politics, it's just Canada, and it's the Canadian voter. What happened during this pandemic? Saskatchewan, they re-elected the same party with the same leader. BC, re-elected the same party and the same leader. New Brunswick, re-elected same party, same leader. And in Quebec, like, they're not even going to have an English language debate, you know? They don't, like, the change in Alberta within the party. A deference to power, shake us up, a little bit of a crisis, we don't want to rock the boat, and it seems like when it actually comes down to it, we'll bitch and moan for years, even when it's really affecting our lives, even when people are dying. But when it comes time, if we vote, we'll vote for the status quo. And last time in Ontario, only 57% of Ontarians who could vote did. And I wonder if that number is going to go down this time. I suspect it will. I, I saw a polling yesterday about the uh, approval numbers for all three party leaders, and none of them are good. Right. And I think that that it's possible to sort of exaggerate the extent to which Ford has a mystical bond with the people of Ontario. Right. Likely what we're going to see is people who typically vote Tory are going to vote Tory. And a lot of suburban people are going to kind of reluctantly vote for this guy who they think in balance is more on their side than the other people. We get what we deserve. 
This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Stephen, in this wild world of ours, important news items just whiz past our heads and we miss them sometimes. And so as a service to our listeners, we duly note those news stories that must be duly noted. What do you have? First of all, this week, Andrew Crystal passed away, and I wanted to mention that. He was a friend of mine, a serious XM host, a longtime Toronto talk radio guy. He was sometimes brash and outrageous. I got to know him when he worked in Halifax at uh, News 95.7. He used to say, well, I'm not a journalist, I'm an entertainer, which is kind of a something that talk radio people say at times, but he sort of happened to do a lot of journalism in passing. A thoughtful guy. He enjoyed being provocative, sometimes too provocative, living on that edge like a lot of talk radio people do. But he was also like kind of an intellectual character. His apartment was full of thousands of books. When he would do author interviews, he'd have read the book. He enjoyed talking about ideas and studying history and uh, was a, a big-hearted guy, and I'm going to miss him. I'm sorry you lost your friend. Thank you. Duly noted. I'm going to duly note a piece that, it was a wire story, and various people picked it up. You know, when news organizations pick up wire stories, they've got discretion, uh, they can write their own headline. And uh, this is the headline that CBC went with. Hunter's wife testifies she warned husband not to drink and drive the night that he died. Now, that concerns a story about a couple of men who were Métis out hunting to feed their families and who got killed, who got shot and killed. 
And the trial is uh, ongoing and it's a complicated story. And I don't really have any position on the, the case itself. Uh, but I want to talk about that headline. Hunter's wife testifies that she warned husband not to drink and drive the night he died. That's a headline that suggests that, you know, whatever happened leading to this guy getting shot, you know, he's probably drunk. His wife warned him not to drink and drive. I don't know about you, Stephen, like my partner, almost just like as a, I love you, honey, you know, careful if you're going out with friends, don't have more than a drink. Like, it's just like, it doesn't mean anything. It's just kind of like, you know, oh, you're going on your bike, be careful. To lead with that as the headline, when you're writing about anybody who's on trial, this idea that they did something to deserve being killed because their wife warned them not to have too many drinks. I think in any circumstance, that would be the wrong thing to lead with in the headline. But the fact that these were indigenous men, it's just a terrible judgment call on CBC's part. And it was called out. Indigenous drafted an open letter talking about how media for years has endorsed and perpetuated the violence against indigenous people in coverage like this. And then CBC backtracked, and the editor's note said, the headline for the story has been changed to better reflect the testimony of Sarah Sansom in the second-degree murder trial. A previous tweet has been deleted. And I want to remark that the idea that the CBC got this headline wrong because they were, like, improperly reflecting her testimony is incorrect. Like, it actually was a correct headline. That is something she said when she gave testimony. They didn't misrepresent her testimony. They highlighted, I think, the wrong part of it, but they didn't misrepresent it. And really what happened here is CBC was just reacting to the fact that people got angry about it. And unless we actually look at the core practices that led to that headline in the first place, if we're still pretending that this just wasn't reactive to public outrage, if we're not willing to look at things that we don't ever want to talk about, like we never want to talk about things like angle or what we're focusing on or where the headline went, you know, all you hear from is the reporters saying, well, I don't write the headlines. And there's some mysterious person whose byline isn't honored who wrote the headline and then it gets changed and no one's really taking responsibility. Like, I think the problem with this headline is that it is consistent with journalism as it is practiced in Canada. That's the problem. Not that they got something like wrong, but that they did it right by the rules that we all play by. And it's those rules themselves that I think we finally need to address and be accountable for. I think that's uh, an interesting observation. We seem to have kind of wandered into this reality where CBC is the biggest newspaper in Canada. Yeah. Which I see how we got here and I, I, I get it. I find it kind of disturbing because it, it makes it a little bit more difficult for city newspapers to sell subscriptions. Be that as it may, the one thing I have noticed over time is that the editing quality at CBC is not always as solid and professional as it is at a good city newspaper. The, the culture is different. I spent years in uh, newspaper newsrooms. and I, I don't know if you've spent time around a, a rim, a copy desk, but there's a very hard-headed culture in those places that makes it less likely for bad headlines, for bad copy edits, and CBC should likely focus more on uh, developing that kind of culture if they're going to continue to be the, the newspaper of record for Canada. Duly noted. Stephen, finally, what's your second duly noted today? In Halifax today, some senior RCMP officers are testifying 
at the inquiry into the mass casualty event at Portapec, the mass shooting that left 22 people dead. Mm -hmm. But because the Commission of Inquiry has decided that uh, because it's a trauma-informed Commission of Inquiry, these senior Mounties who made the key decisions that may have led to the deaths of people, about half the people, if they'd stopped this guy on the night rather than letting him go or letting him escape, 10 people would still be alive. So because it's trauma-informed, the approach, they will not be cross-examined. They are being um, questioned on video, and the uh, lawyers for uh, some of the families are staying away from the commission in protest this week. And, you know, this is a, a horrible, sickening story that I don't know if it gets the kind of national media attention that it should because it's happening in, in uh, a rural area. I thought the Globe had an excellent column this week, a submitted column from Kent Roach, a University of Toronto law professor, mm -hmm. talking about the future of the RCMP and suggesting that they should be withdrawing from providing community policing in a lot of these areas. I think that that their failures, their repeated failures in providing contract policing, it's difficult to treat that as the important national issue it is because it does not affect Ontario or Quebec or most large cities in Canada. This is a rural problem where the level of policing service is very poor and as a consequence, we are not covering that with the attention that we should. Yeah, I think that that's accurate. And I think that, you know, the fact that the RCMP are the police for a lot of communities in Canada has specific impacts on Indigenous people. And I think that, like, let us not scorn the concept of trauma-informed justice or trauma-informed reporting or just trying to approach things with that lens. Let's scorn the people who use that as a cover to avoid scrutiny and, and accountability. Duly noted. Stephen, the Online News Act, that is something that we have been covering extensively over on the Monday show at Canada Land. This is a piece of federal legislation that is going to completely change the Canadian news media. I have covered it. I have shared my thoughts on it. My opinions might not match yours. You and I may not agree about these measures. It's possible. But I don't think it matters what I think because it's happening. I'm past it. I'm past the part of hating this bill and saying, oh, everybody needs to know about, like, it is happening. And in fact, there's like four weeks until it is expected to be passed. And this is all about forcing Facebook and Google to pay news companies for the news. Am I misrepresenting you in saying that you're like totally okay with that? I don't know if I'm totally okay with it. I'm not okay with the continued collapse, which I think you may be okay with of the legacy newspapers. <laughs> if you look who's at the city council meetings, who's covering the hearings, the trials, for better or for worse, there's a lot less of that, what I think of as watchdog journalism happening now. Mm -hmm. And if these systems collapse, perhaps there will be a lot of hundreds of uh, Jesse Browns across the country starting new crowd-funded 
outlets to provide that service. But what if that isn't what happens? Well, there are over 100 people starting micro news organizations that are, you know, crowdfunded. But that I could go another 10 rounds and everybody would fall asleep because it doesn't matter this argument because it's happening. The calculation you made, which is like maybe you don't love it that it's got to get bailed out by Facebook and Google, but you can live with it because you want to have at least preservation of that, you know, journalism is how this file has concluded or so everybody thought. And what I want to do today and why I'm bringing this up again is not to have this endless debate, but I need to tell everybody, I thought I understood this bill, but I was at a conference and I was brought to the understanding of something really alarming about this bill. And it's complicated. Can I try to explain it to you? Yeah, please. Okay. Where we left this was like, I was concerned about the backroom deals, the lack of transparency. There were winners and losers. Like companies were already striking deals with Facebook and Google. We had no idea how much money. And then other news outlets were being left out. I had concerns about the criteria for inclusion. It was shutting out startups and tiny news organizations of which there are over a hundred because you have to have like two employees. Where we left this was, it's going to happen, and there's some, like, finer points about who gets in and whether we're going to know about the figures. But it's going to happen, and uh, essentially, as long as you've got those two employees and you're a news organization, and, you know, by the way, Canada Land would qualify if we wanted it, you would get money from Facebook and Google, and this bill would force Facebook and Google to pay you if you couldn't reach a private deal with them. That's the whole point of this deal, is that it forces Facebook and Google to go into binding arbitration with news organizations that are deemed news organizations. And what I learned is that that's not necessarily true. There is a loophole, man. There is a loophole that essentially could exclude, exempt Google and Facebook from the bill, really, entirely. There is section 11 of bill C-18, stay with me. It sets up criteria under which, you know, any of these companies, they don't name Google or Facebook, but this bill is explicitly written for Google and Facebook and pretty much nobody else. And what this Section 11 sets out is that they can apply for an exemption order, which gets them off the hook of being forced to pay news organizations. This is something that they lobbied for, big tech lobbied for this, and they got it. And... What it allows them to do is to say to the government, to the regulator, CRTC, hey, just go ask the newspaper lobby. Just go ask the broadcaster lobby group. We're cool. We've reached deals. The market solution has privately dealt with this. We don't need government. There's a market-based solution. We're already funding the news. Go ask the big lobby groups and they'll tell you. And, you know, there's like some finer points in the exemption order. They've got to say that they've also put some money into local news and diverse news. But, hey, that's covered by the big groups to some extent, undefined. And if they get this exemption, then they are exempt from this bill. And what that would mean is that everybody else is shut out. And if that sounds like paranoia, that is exactly what happened in Australia. This whole idea that this is like forcing Google and Facebook to cut deals was circumvented. And all of the small digital news publishers in Australia were cut out and they kind of had a strike and they, their sites went dark. They, they, they froze their sites, no publication for 24 hours. Seems like a bit of a futile gesture. Hope I don't have to do that here. The way the dust settled was that like Rupert Murdoch and, and the other big players 
cut backroom secret deals and every other news organization was cut out. And there is a mechanism in this bill for that to happen here. Well, I had no idea. And that's kind of depressing. Yeah, it's uh, something that like I had to take very seriously in a couple of different ways. First of all, as a reporter, I wanted people to know about this because like this whole thing has been terribly underreported and we've been doing our best, but it's complicated, weird stuff. And this was a new thing that I wanted to tell people about. But then I also have like a fiduciary duty. Like I don't want Canada Land to potentially get cut out of this. And I don't know, the finer points of this are kind of interesting. Like I want to go even further into some of the wonky detail here. What I learned was that, like, Google's not particularly concerned about the money because we're talking about millions of dollars, but we're not talking about hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Like, that's not – it's not big money to Google. What Google is really concerned about in this bill and what makes their asshole tense up and what Facebook, I think, as well is concerned about is that under this bill, it's not just that they have to cut deals with media, but – there's all this weird stuff in the bill about how they can't discriminate against one news source to the advantage of another, which, you know, that sounds like a good idea in principle. But in practice, if you're Google or Facebook, you've got the law saying you can't give undue preference to any one news organization. Well, what does Google do but give preferential access to information? Their whole algorithm is about giving you top results and lower results based on their secret sauce. Facebook too, what goes in your newsfeed is based on their proprietary algorithm. So they're arguing that this bill breaks the internet. It breaks search. And it means that if Canada Land were to say, hey, you're giving Globe and Mail results above Canada Land, we could then haul them before the government and they would have to actually, like it would violate their copyright. They'd have to share their algorithm with the government or face these $15 million a day fines. And that to them is an existential threat, which means that they're going to put everything that they have towards getting this exemption so they don't ever find themselves in that situation. And why that matters to like more than just me and other digital news publishers is that it hands a bargaining position to the biggest newspapers like the Globe and Mail, which is owned by the richest family in Canada, or the Irving newspapers, which is owned by a billionaire family, where essentially they can set their terms. I'm hearing that like Jamie Irving is saying, I want $150,000 from big tech for every journalist I employ, which I think is like 50% at least more than he pays the journalists he employs. So we're talking about the ability for big media in Canada to put a gun to Google and Facebook's head and for the public to never know the size of the payoff, while meanwhile, every small news organization gets cut out. And beyond telling everybody about this, Stephen, I need to tell everybody about what this has changed for me because I've crossed a line. I got four weeks and every digital news publisher in Canada has four weeks before this becomes a law. That's what's expected. And with the liberal NDP team up, there's no reason to believe that this bill isn't going to become a law. But amendments can happen. Improvements can be made. And a bunch of us got together and talked and said, we're getting cut out of this potentially. None of this is transparent. Startups are getting cut out of this. The big media guys have had dozens and dozens of lobbyist meetings. We haven't done anything. We got to get in the game or we're going to be left out in the cold. And I decided, yeah, like I got to do more than just inform people about this. I got to advocate for my company. And so I got involved in... 
I think we're calling ourselves a consortium. You could also call it a cartel. It's all the digital or not all, but like, you know, most of the little digital news publishers in Canada are trying to do something to improve this bill, not just for ourselves, because like I have two employees uh, more than that, but all these other micro news organizations don't. And that's one of the things we're trying to change. But for the first time in my life, I'm actually trying to play nice with others, but I've crossed the line into actually trying to change a piece of Canadian legislation. And I think that disqualifies me from reporting on it. And, you know, I'll still talk about it here, like kind of like publisher's note, I'll opine about it. I'll do everything I can to be accurate and give you good information. But if we're reporting on this, I got to give that job to one of my colleagues because I resent it, man. Like that's part of what I do is report on this stuff. But I, I've basically fired myself from that job because I think it's better for Canada land and maybe for other news organizations if I actually get involved in trying to change this damn thing. I want to tell you that the explanation you've just given me and like, because you have money in the game, you're motivated to dig into this and maybe you'll stop reporting on it. But this kind of commentary is probably just as useful. Good for you for spending the time to understand it and explain it. I have a question for you about this. Yeah. Because Facebook and Google are in this kind of very complicated political and economic set of negotiations with the government and news providers. Do you think that there is a chill at all in the media on covering questions about disinformation, misinformation, and other harms associated with the platforms? So it's a complicated question. I don't think the media has been chilled in terms of like reporting on that stuff. If anything, these political machinations have given more reason for media to cover those things in a broader sense, because the more that, that mainstream media reports on disinformation and misinformation, you're creating these categories that like puts a high value on legacy media information. That's the good information. That's not the misinformation and disinformation. And, you know, if Post Media happens to have an article advocating for white replacement theory, they'll just unpublish that and not say anything about it. You know, like some of the things they do are just as bad as, as the things that the misinformers and disinformers have. But it's a winning issue, and it's it's uh, especially when you're covering Russia, Ukraine, they'll go for it. But I think your question was specifically about the culpability of the big tech platforms. Uh, what I can tell you is not even a matter of opinion. I have recently confirmed what I suspected for a long time, which is that this series of articles in the Toronto Star called defanging big tech, just like a crusade uh, against specifically Google and Facebook, and the evils that they've brought to society and how poorly run they are and how they've spread misinformation, disinformation, that came not from the editorial offices of the Toronto Star. That came from the executive offices of the Toronto Star. And that was a crusade to help their legislative goals of getting this bill. It came from John Boynton. And it's egregious. They were getting reporters to smear and slam the big tech platforms and there certainly should be journalism criticizing the big tech platforms, but they were doing it for a specific goal. And once they got that goal, those stories almost completely dried up. So that's the impact. We can see it play out right there. And it played out across Canadian media that, that Facebook and Google were public enemy number one until those news companies went into business with Facebook and Google. They did not stop covering or criticizing those companies, but they absolutely removed that level of pressure. And you can look at that a couple of ways because that pressure was only as intense as it was because they were trying to squeeze, you know, money out of Facebook and Google and a bill out of Ottawa. Huh. That's interesting. I had not uh, looked at it that way and wasn't aware of that uh, 
Star Series. I have heard editors say, well, we should be careful. You know, we've got this relationship. You've heard that. You've heard that directly. Yeah. It's, a, um, it's bound to be a concern for news organizations that are stressed financially, right? If, if one key source of revenue is a business relationship with a particular sector, there's financial pressure. If you live in a pulp town, you think hard before you write a story about uh, pollution from the pulp mill, right? That's, uh, that's the nature of the, of the business. Yeah. And, and we're not even talking about reliance on one sector. We're talking about reliance on like a couple of companies, you know, that are like subsidizing your editorial operations to a very significant degree, but a secret degree. I have skin in this game, and um, that's that's the headline. Like, I hope that this conversation is beneficial for people, but, you know, blinking lights on this, I have an interest in this, and I'm going to have to announce that every time I talk about it. Now, if there's anything good that could come out of this bill, it's that it removes that fear in theory that you actually have to be careful what you say about Google and Facebook or maybe they'll like cut you out of the deal or drop the deal or give your competitor a better deal. Because if there's anything good about the intent of this legislation, it's that it forces them to make deals with everybody. And one of the things that this consortium of independents is fighting for is that the funding formula should be the same for everybody. So they can't give one company a much better deal because they're a bigger company or because they wrote a bunch of nasty articles or something like that. And if there's a consistent universal funding formula, then I can say whatever the fuck I want about Google or Facebook, and they'll have to pay me anyhow. They'll have to, they'll have to pay me to link to my content where I slam them, which is kind of funny. But Stephen, you know, my biggest fears about this, that it would politicize the news, have been realized almost instantly. And it politicized those news organizations that I'm criticizing. And now it's politicized me. Like, I'm now active politically. And as, as a journalist, I resent that. I resent being put in this position. But, you know, if there's that level of market interference in your industry, I guess I reached a point where I determined, like, I could stand here and say, I'm independent. I'm not going to have anything to do with any of this stuff. But how do you keep your head above water when you're on an uneven playing field? And you're mixing your metaphors. You can't do all those things at the same time. You're, you're trying to keep your head above water on an uneven playing field. That sounds hard. It's not easy, man. No. That's Shortcuts. Stephen Marr, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand, and our website is CanadaLand.com, where... I think maybe the best episode so far of this riveting season on the war in Afghanistan has just been published by our sister show, Commons. Go and listen to this because Archie Mann confronts Harjit Sajjan about his role in the Afghanistan war. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. Stephen, where can people find you and where can they find your novels? Wherever good books are sold. And they can find me on Twitter at S-T-P-H-N-M-A-H-E-R. And they can find my uh, most recent article in The Walrus on how politics is getting nastier for politicians. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by so-called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hey, if you like what you do uh, and you want to support us, there's never been a better time. The clock is ticking down to the final moments of our annual sale. Instead of 9 bucks a month, it's $1 a month for your first three months when you click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. 
hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you.